So today we're going to be reading from verses 1 to verse 15. As soon as Adonai Zadok, king of Jerusalem, heard how Joshua had captured Ai and, and, and had devoted it to destruction, doing to Ai and its king as he had done to Jericho and its king, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them, he feared greatly, because Gibeon was a great city, like one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than Ai, and all its men were warriors. So Adonai Zadok, king of Jerusalem, sent to Hoham, king of Hebron, to Piram, king of Jarmuth, to Japhia, king of Lachish, and to Debir, king of Eglon, saying, Come up to me and help me, and let us strike Gibeon. For it has made peace with Joshua and with the people of Israel. Then the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon gathered their forces and went up with all their armies and camped against Gibeon and made war against it. The men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp in Gilgal, saying, Do not relax your hand from your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us, for all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the hill country are gathered against us. So Joshua went up from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and all the mighty men of valor. The Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them. For I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. So Joshua came up to them suddenly, having marched up all night from Gilgal. The Lord struck them in a panic before Israel, who struck them with a great wave, a great blow at Gibeon, and chased them by the way of the ascent of Beth Horon, and struck them as far as Ezekah and Makeda. And as they fled before Israel, while they were going down the ascent of Beth Horon, the Lord threw down large stones from heaven on them as far as Ezekiah, and they died. There were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. At that time, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel. He said in the sight of Israel, Sun, stand still at Gibeon, and moon in the valley of Ajalon. And the sun stood still, and the moon stopped until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Jashar? The sun stopped in the midst of heaven and did not hurry to set for about a whole day. There has been no day like it before or since when the Lord heeded the voice of a man for the Lord fought for Israel. So Joshua returned and all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. Well, I played recreational basketball for most of my life, and uh, for whatever reason, when I was little and I was learning how to shoot, I didn't learn how to shoot correctly, so I have incredibly poor uh, form and technique when I shoot, so I'm a terrible shooter, and when I say I'm a terrible shooter, I'm not exaggerating, I'm really a very, very terrible shooter, like in warm-ups, you might, I might take 20 shots and maybe make one of them, so whenever I play basketball, I usually focus on rebounds and passing and layups. I don't usually take three-point shots. But it's not for lack of trying. I, when I was growing up, I had a basketball hoop, and I used to take lots of shots. I used to play with my brother a lot. But for whatever reason, I can't shoot three-pointers. One day, something changed. Something clicked with me. I was playing just a pickup game of basketball, and for whatever reason, I took the ball beyond the three-point line, and I was going to take a shot. Like I said, I don't usually take three-point shots. And I took a shot, and it went in. And I took another shot. It went in. Shot after shot after shot went in. 
And I started getting fancy with that. I was running with the ball and then just kind of tossing it up in the air, and it went in. I think I shot like five for eight on three-pointers that night. Something clicked that night. Unfortunately, the next time I played, it went back to normal, so I don't know what happened that night. But for that one night, all the practice that I'd ever done in basketball culminated, and I was a shooter that night. And then it went back to normal. <laughs> you ever had something like that happen where something just kind of clicks in your mind? You know, like when you're a kid and you're riding a bike and you have training wheels on the bike. And then the training wheels come off and for a while you're kind of wobbling around. You don't know exactly how to keep your balance. But then after a while, you get to a point where you don't think about it anymore. You just keep riding. Or when you're learning to read, you learn different letters and how those letters sound. And you're kind of slowly spelling out words. But then you get to a point where you don't think about the letters anymore. You don't think about the words. It just kind of flows. Something clicks in your mind and comes together. And I think in this passage that we're looking at today, something clicks for Joshua. We see, we saw a few weeks ago how uh, in the beginning of the book of Joshua, God commands Joshua again and again, be strong and be courageous. Joshua 1.9 says this again, Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous? Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And the fact that God had to repeat this to Joshua over and over again probably indicates it's something that he struggled with. He struggled with being courageous. He struggled with fear, being too cautious, not really believing and walking forward in God's confidence. But here in this passage, something clicks with Joshua and he gets it. Joshua becomes strong and courageous. He becomes the leader that God has called him to be. And the request that he makes is downright bold and audacious. Look at what it says in the text. He says in the text in verse 12, he commands the sun and the moon to stand still. Not only does he do that, but he does that in front of all of the people. All the people are gathered there and he commands the sun and the moon to stand still. Do you know what would have to happen for the sun and the moon to stand still? The earth would have to stop rotating on its axis. And if that happened, what would happen is everything in the, on the earth would still be moving. And so every human being would be flying through the air at about 400 miles an hour. Buildings would topple and be flying through the air. There would be great tsunamis, the, world, the likes of which the world would never, has never seen. There would be earthquakes it would be chaos on the earth. Now Joshua doesn't know completely what he's asking, but he's asking God something of cosmic significance. He's asking him for the sun and the moon to stand still in front of all the people. I mean, how many of us are that bold in our prayers? God, I pray that the sun and moon would just stay in the sky today, that the earth would stop on its axis, that you would bend all the rules of nature for this day to continue. At first we need to think about why did Joshua want the day to continue? Why did he want the sun and the moon to stay in the sky? Well, it could have been that he just wanted it to stay in the sky so they would have time to defeat their enemies. 
But the problem with that is, given the position of the sun and the moon at this time, it's probably in the morning. So he probably doesn't know how long it's going to take the battle to go on. But another option is that in the ancient world, uh, the ancient peoples were often given to different omens. And there was this belief that if the sun and the moon stood opposite to one another on any day except for the 14th day of the month, then it was a bad sign or a bad omen and a sign of destruction. And so Joshua may have wanted this sign of destruction to appear in the sky so that the people that they were fighting against would be demoralized and lose heart. But we see that in commanding the sun and the moon to obey him, Joshua is making a profound theological statement. It's not just a command, it's a profound theological statement. Because in the ancient world, nearly every culture had gods for the sun and often for the moon. We saw that with the Egyptians, we saw that with the Canaanites. And the reason was simple, because people relied on the sun, they relied on the sun for growing their crops, for giving them warmth, for uh, the seasons. And so the sun and the moon were very important. And, you know, when we think about the sun and the moon, we might think about, you know, the sun as being a star and how far we are away from the sun. Or we might think about NASA and the lunar uh, moon landing. And we think about space and science, but they didn't think about it that way. When they thought about the sun and they thought about the moon, they thought about gods inhabiting or uh, those things being an extension of the gods. And we see in the book of Deuteronomy that God commands the Israelites not to bow down and worship the sun and the moon. Deuteronomy 4.19 says this, And beware lest you raise your eyes to heaven when you see the sun and the moon and the stars and all the host of heaven, you be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them. Things that the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven. God says, don't bow down to the sun and the moon and worship them. And in this passage, Joshua is obeying that command because he's not, not only is he not bowing down to the sun and moon, but he's commanding the sun and moon to bow down to him. And in so doing, he's recognizing that the sun and moon are under the command and the hand of the one true God, the God of Israel. And so he's making a theological statement. And what's interesting is that God listens to him. He stops the sun and the moon. The text tells us in verse 14, there's been no day like it before or since. And it says, when the Lord heeded the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. And what was unique about this? What was unique about the fact that God listened to Joshua? Because in the scriptures, of course, there are many different instances where God heeded the voice of a man. When God... When people prayed to God and God responded. So what is unique about this event? I think the uniqueness of this event is the scope of what Joshua is asking in commanding the sun and the moon. He's doing something that usually only God controls. We see in the scriptures a number of times that God is the one who's in charge of the sun and the moon. Genesis 1, 16 18 talks about the creation. It says God made the two great lights... The greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. 
Psalm 74, verse 16 says this, Yours is the day, yours also the night. You have established the heavenly lights and the sun. Psalm 104, 19 says this, He made the moon to mark the seasons, the sun to knows its time for setting. So clearly in the scriptures, God is the one who is in charge of the sun and the moon, but here he is allowing Joshua to control the sun and the moon. And I think the reason that he does this is because of Joshua's great faith. His great faith in the God of Israel. And his faith is based upon what God has already promised him in verse 8, where it says, Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not a man shall stand before them. And so Joshua goes into battle courageously, and he's so sure of God's promise that God will bring him the victory that he's commanding the sun and the moon to obey him, to bring about what God has already declared would happen. So here's a question for us to consider today. Are your prayers marked by that kind of audacious faith? Would your prayers be described as being strong and courageous prayers? Because Jesus calls us to be bold and audacious in the requests that that we bring to him. In the Gospels, Jesus curses a fig tree. The fig tree withers. And then his disciples are amazed that Jesus could have that kind of command over the fig tree. And then Jesus responds to them and he says this, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. Likewise, the disciples are unable to cast out a demon uh, from a young boy. And they come to Jesus and say, why can't we cast out the demon? Look at how Jesus responds. It says, because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there. And it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. The phrase moving a mountain in the ancient world and Jewish understanding was something that was kind of a euphemism for doing something that was impossible. And what Joshua asked for in commanding the sun and the moon is something that's impossible. It's impossible for the world to stop, for everyone to stop in that, in it, from a natural point of view. And Jesus says that you can do the impossible when you believe in me, when you call out to me. That you can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will get up and move from here to there. Now some people have used this passage to kind of say that you can name it and claim it. That you can say a prayer, and if you have enough faith, you can get whatever you want. Now we know that's not true. We know that God, it has to be in God's will. And we see in the book of Joshua, like I said, this was in God's will. God had already told him he was going to have the victory. God had already told Joshua he was going to be with him. And so this was in accordance with God's will. And we see even Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane prays to God that if possible this cup would be removed from him. He says, not my will, but your will. So when we come to prayer, we need to come with that kind of attitude where we're seeking God's will first. We also need to come with the right motives. James reminds us of that the book of James, where we need to come with a heart that wants to please God. 
There's a difference between asking God for a million dollars and asking for our friend or loved one to come to know him. Now, of course, there's nothing wrong with asking for material possessions, but God wants us to have a heart of love towards those around us. If we have, if we're constantly asking him kind of petulant prayers just to serve our own interests, he probably will not answer those things. But he calls us to come to him with confidence and boldness, with maybe even audacity. In Luke chapter 11, verses 5 to 10, Jesus tells a parable to that effect. He says, which of you has a, who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has arrived on a journey. I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me. The door is not shut. My children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give you anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it will be open to you. So imagine that happens to you. It's midnight. You're in bed. Your kids are in bed. You've locked all of the doors. You're sleeping. And your friend shows up at your door, texts you, Hey, I have some company coming in tomorrow. Could I borrow a few eggs for casserole that I'm making? I'm at your door. Now, you probably wouldn't feel all lovey and emotional to you about your friend at that point. You probably would be a little bit upset, and so you probably wouldn't go down and say, oh, I would be happy to. Anytime you want to come to my house at midnight and wake me up and my whole family up, I'd be happy to give some eggs that you could get at the grocery store. Be happy to do that. But because of his boldness, because of the fact that he was willing to knock at the door at midnight, you would probably get out of bed, go to the refrigerator, grab some eggs, maybe even a dozen eggs, and say, here, just get out of here. It wasn't because he's your friend, it's because of his boldness in asking you. And Jesus illustrates, he, he gives us that parable to illustrate the fact that we're to have that kind of boldness on audacity to bring our request to God. Not that God doesn't care about our requests, but he is highlighting our, our heart that we should come to him in reckless abandon. But we don't often do that, do we? We don't often come to him with boldness, with confidence, with audacious requests. I think one of the reasons that we don't do it is because we don't really know the heart of our Heavenly Father. When I was uh, beginning to date Stephanie, you know, a few maybe a few weeks or a month after I started dating her, I met Stephanie's parents. And I had no experience with in-laws, and the only image I had of in-laws was kind of this media-driven image of a father with a shotgun saying, don't you dare mess with my daughter. And so every time I went there, the first few times I went there, I was on edge, I was nervous. I didn't know how they felt about me. I didn't know if they wanted me in their family. So I didn't ask for anything. It's like they were, can I get you a drink of water? I'm like, no, I'm never thirsty. Uh, could, I, could I get you something to eat? No, I, I'm never hungry. Uh, could I get you a blanket? No, I've, I've never been cold in my life. And I didn't want to ask anything of them because I wasn't sure how they felt about me. 
and I didn't want to bother them with anything. But they, of course, liked me from the beginning, and they were very gracious, and over time I realized they they really wanted me in their family. They really did like me, and they even loved me. And so it got easier to ask for things. You know, and it wasn't too long before I could ask for something, or if I needed a glass of water, I could go right into the cupboard and get a glass of water. Because I knew how they felt about me. I think the same thing is true with our relationship with God. If we're not sure how God feels about us, then we won't feel confident bringing Him audacious requests. If we think that He's a judge up in the sky, ready to throw down a lightning bolt on us because of our sins, then we're not going to bring an audacious request to him. We're not going to be bold in his presence. But when we know how he feels about us, when we look to the cross, and we remember the scripture that tells us if he gave his own son, will he not also give us all things? If we believe that, then we can come boldly into his presence and we can bring audacious requests to him. And another reason I think that we don't bring bold requests to God is we don't really believe that he's going to come through. We've been living a certain way for so long that we don't really believe that he's going to come through, that he can change our circumstances. That our circumstance is so dark and so desperate and so beyond repair that he could never fix us. And yet those are the moments when we need to come to God. Those are the moments when God is prepared to intervene. Where a miracle can happen in our life. Where we can come in boldness asking for something, believing for something that from a human perspective is completely impossible and illogical. And that's when God moves. That's when God acts. See, God loves us more than we can imagine. Matthew 7, 9-11 says this, Which of you, if his son asks for, his, for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to good, give good gifts to your children, how much more will your, will your Father in Heaven give good things to those who ask Him? God loves us more than we can imagine. And when we bring bold, audacious requests to Him, I think it pleases His heart. I think it brings joy to his heart that we would trust him and that we would believe him. See, audacious faith in an awesome God produces astounding results. Audacious faith in an awesome God produces astonishing or astounding results. Pastor and author Tony Evans tells a story about how he was leading a crusade in Columbia, South Carolina at the University of South Carolina And thousands and thousands of people had gathered for this crusade. And this evening session was supposed to start at about 7 o'clock. The problem was there was a severe thunderstorm that was supposed to come into the area about that same time. And so they got together as the sky grew darker and darker and they started praying. And they were thinking about possibly canceling the meeting. And Evans notes that the pastors who were there gave pretty safe prayers. Prayers that were probably went something like, you know, God, if it be your will, let us continue. If not, we'll just quit for today. But then there was one woman there named Linda. 
And she, her prayer went something like this. She said, Lord, thousands have gathered to hear the good news about your son. It would be a shame on your name for us to have all these unbelievers go without the gospel when you control the weather. And you don't stop them. In the name of Jesus Christ, address the storm. So the prayer meeting ended. Everyone took their places. And uh, the person in charge of the crusade said, we'll go on as long as we can. People, start, people started to open up their umbrellas. As some, one man opened up his umbrella, he tried to share it with this lady named Linda. She walked away. She said, I don't need an umbrella. Or something to that effect. Evans says he and his wife watched as the rain clouds came up to the stadium and then split in two. The storm rained on both sides of the stadium and it came back together on the other side. And all the people gathered for the crusade stayed dry. Evans points this out. He says, how did Linda get what the preachers didn't? She had the boldness, the shameless audacity to ask. Audacious faith in an awesome God produces astonishing results. I'd like to close by reading um, a quote by Charles Spurgeon. He said, prayer pulls the rope below, and the great bell rings above in the ears of God. Some scarcely stir the bell, for they pray so languidly. Others give but an occasional pluck at the rope. But he who wins with heaven is the man who grasps the rope boldly and pulls continuously with all of his might. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you that we need, don't need to question how you feel about us, that you demonstrated once and for all in the cross that you love us and that you're for us. We thank you that for those of us who are believers in you, that you're our Father and that you long to give good things to us. We thank you that we can call out to you, that we can bring our request to you boldly, that even though we're sinners, that we're broken, we can come into your presence and find help and healing. That we can come and bring to you things that are happening in our life, things that are small, things that are big, things that are impossible, that are just crazy from a human perspective. We come to you in faith, believing that you can do what you say you can do. Believing that you can do the impossible if it's in your will. God, I pray that we would be people of boldness and audacity, that we would seek your heart, seek your face, believing that you can do what you say you can do.